Welcome back to Until It's Fixed, Season 2. I'm Stacey Dove. And I'm Callie Chamberlain. Until It's Fixed takes an inside look at pressing topics in the healthcare industry, new approaches to care, and how to make the health system work better for all of us today. In this episode, we'll be covering transportation and access to local health care. Many of us are fortunate not really to have to think about or worry about getting to the doctor, but for many Americans, the logistics of getting to in-person services can be a huge barrier to care. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can offer and provide the best care in the world, but it means nothing if a patient can't actually get to the appointment. A 2013 Journal of Community Health study found transportation challenges disproportionately affect the elderly, children, minorities, and veterans, as well as patients who are low income, less educated, or chronically ill. And what we know for sure is that expanding access to care helps improve early disease identification, which is essential to long-term health and well-being. One of the companies innovating in this space is Lyft, a company you know for transportation, which introduced Lyft Healthcare a few years ago. Lyft Healthcare specializes in non-emergency medical transportation, referred to as NEMT throughout this episode. I recently had a chance to talk with two people who've worked closely on that project. Thank you both so much for joining. I'm really excited to have this conversation. If you could both tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks so much for having us, Callie. This is an exciting conversation I've been looking forward to having alongside you and Megan, someone that I have a great deal of respect for. This is Dr. Nicole Cooper, and I currently serve as a Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs at United Health Group. We've been hard at work thinking about the company's many touch points across various health plans, healthcare delivery arms, our partnerships across the healthcare ecosystem, and beyond. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about my most recent role on Megan's team at Lyft Healthcare. I actually returned a few months ago to United Health Group from Lyft Healthcare, where I formerly served as the head of healthcare policy and led federal and state policy priorities and partnerships on her team. At a very exciting time of growth for Lyft Healthcare, which we'll get into. Thanks, Nicole. I likewise am excited to have this conversation with you. And we still miss you at Lyft Healthcare United. You should be very proud to have you back. But thank you, Callie, for having me. So my name is Megan Callahan. I'm president of Lyft Healthcare, and I am a career-long digital health, healthcare IT executive, and was excited to join the Lyft Healthcare team three years ago so that we could really focus on reducing transportation barriers to care, which is just, if you think about it, the most fundamental kind of access to care. And we are focused on accessing both uh, medical care and improving access to all kinds of programs that promote overall health. We believe that transportation is one of the most important social determinants of health. So at Lyft, we've seen the positive impact transportation can have, not just on costs and operational efficiencies, but also on overall health. Just to orient your listeners, Lyft's healthcare business is different than calling and paying for a ride to a medical appointment on your phone through the Lyft app. So we partner with payers, transportation managers, health systems, digital health companies who want to request, schedule, and pay for a ride on behalf of a patient. So the patient or member does not need to have the Lyft app or a smartphone if they don't have one, but if they do, they can actually initiate their own ride while a healthcare organization still pays for that ride. 
no one should not uh, make a medical appointment because they can't get there. Thank you for providing that background. And again, welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining. I'm wondering if you can dig into that a little bit deeper, Megan, and tell us about the history of local care access and why Lyft decided to come into this space. So just to provide some context, Kylie, I mean, every year, about 6 million people in the United States delay non-emergency medical care due to lack of transportation. And that's from a research study. So it's a validated statistic. And we estimate that costs us hundreds of millions of dollars every year. From you know an individual perspective, transportation-related barriers occur because uh, they have a variety of obstacles. Certainly, uh, lack of access to the healthcare um, ecosystem in general. Transportation barriers disproportionately affect those with disabilities and economic hardship, disproportionately communities of color who can't afford their own transportation or don't live near public transport. In the traditional Medicaid, non-emergency medical transportation, so Medicaid being the government insurance program um, for the poor or disabled, they can face barriers to care via the traditional system. The drivers don't show up. They have very long wait times. They are required to schedule a trip up to 48 to 72 hours in advance. If their appointment changes, they have to call back in and reschedule the appointment. So it's very uh, challenging for someone to navigate that system, particularly if they are not particularly adept or have you know access to a lot of support. Yeah, those numbers are really staggering. Thank you for providing that background. I'm wondering what some of the other key barriers are that people face to getting in-person care. Certainly medical transportation is is has centrality and again is an an ingredient um in lack of access to care that has probably been de-emphasized when it should not have been um, more historically so very glad that now there's the introduction of transportation network companies and lived healthcare in particular stepping up to play the role that it currently plays. We still see that one in four Americans just simply don't have a primary care provider today. So really the biggest barriers remain increasing, um, significantly increasing the supply of affordable, accessible, and culturally competent forms of wellness care, prevention, primary care. And as we think about what our system should be doing and thinking about providing more access to local care, we should be ensuring that people have adequate rides to simply get to their preventive care services and appointments on a regular basis. So when we think about local access to health care, it's, it's certainly a major concern. And when we think about what's happening in urban communities across the country, rural communities that have shortages of health care providers, and what, what that means for our healthcare workforce, which is a, a different topic, but you know, really as Megan lives and breathes each day, and as she's talked about the communities that lack access to affordable, accessible, and convenient forms of medical transportation um, in particular um, are ignored. So medical transportation is not a new problem, but how have you all seen this change over time? Five to 10 years ago, I don't even think, you know, SGOH or social determinants of health was a term, at least that wasn't widely used. So understanding that this is an underlying structural issue that we have to solve for, I think, is is there and, and we're building upon it. Non-emergency medical transportation, medical transportation has had a long history in the country. It has been part of the Medicaid program since the Medicaid program was created in the 60s. The Veterans Affair has covered some form of transportation since the 1940s. 
And certainly there has long been you know, an infrastructure in the United States around non-emergency medical transportation. Often, particularly because it is a covered benefit in Medicaid, the transportation managers who, who administer these transportation programs are charged with finding the lowest cost alternative for patients. Often that means putting multiple patients into a shuttle of some sort. If you can think about that kind of an experience, it will take you, you know, several hours often to do the pickups. You then go to the doctor and then it takes you several hours to get home. That means often they're taking an entire day off of work, which they likely can't afford to do, or they are having to pay for childcare for an extended period of time. So when Lyft entered the NEMT ecosystem in 2016, if you think of an experience where you don't have to call in three days before to schedule a ride, where we can be to most 96% of the United States within roughly, you know, four to seven minutes, how much that would change the experience of these patients. Absolutely. I think that is so important. And I'm actually wondering, how did the pandemic impact the ability of people who relied on public transportation to get to their non-emergency medical appointments? Yeah, well, specifically within the last year and a half during COVID-19 and, and sheltering in place, transportation barriers became even more exacerbated when what we saw was public transportation went on greatly reduced schedules and because many feared the risk of exposure um, as they crowded into to public spaces or, or shared vehicles. So even though there was this mass shift to telehealth, which of course was was fantastic as a way to reduce access barriers, we, we did see the, the local access care gap widen between those with reliable technology and broadband and of course, um, access to public transportation and, and those without. And, and that disproportionately impacted people of color and people with low socioeconomic status. We did see some bright points during the pandemic. If you could think of New York, um, at the height of the pandemic, you know, we were running a lot of shuttles for those nurses and doctors who did not necessarily want to get on public transportation to serve their patients, and, and we were happy to play that role. I'd also add that the U.S. healthcare system, as we all know and see each day and watching the news and experiencing it as, as patients ourselves, you know, the system is under incredible pressure, uh, more pressure than it was under, and it was inequitable to begin with. With. And so as we think about, you know, COVID-19 response now as a factor, it is largely shown the fault lines in, the, in our system. And I'm doing air quotes here um, and showing where we, in fact, don't have systems in place um, and how we really do have to find new ways of approaching how we improve outcomes and broaden access to care. Secondly, thinking also around, you know, yes, the same people who often struggle with uh, access to medical transportation, who lack food, often are also faced with not having adequate sources of safe and affordable housing. Um, and of course, that's another issue that's now front and center with, with COVID-19, just really showing us the fault lines in our social care system. So many of these outcomes we know are because the U.S. spends more than any other developed nation on medical care and less than any other developed nation on social and behavioral care. And um, that way of arranging our system, again, in air quotes, is simply not working. It's clearly created a system that's unsustainable and quite inequitable. So we have to be thinking about how we shift our focus, shift our dollars and our resources, and um, focus on the various partnerships and contributors, institutions, companies, et cetera, that have a role to play in meeting these needs. 
Yeah, I really appreciate the way that you framed that and knitted everything together. I'd love to hear a little bit about the big ideas driving Lyft Healthcare forward, both when it was first introduced and more recently. Sure. Um, well, I think I think our origin story is is interesting and and, and somewhat comical. Um, there was an organization in Utah that was calling on the consumer application a large number of rides, but the rides were occurring in New York. And that actually tripped our fraud analytics. And as we dug into it, and this was before I joined Lyft, but as as Lyft dug into it, it was it was a transportation manager who was working on behalf of a large payer who could not get rides through traditional transportation providers. So they were using burner phones and calling Lyft rides from Utah for patients in New York. And so uh, Lyft obviously entered the healthcare arena by by plugging into the existing non-emergency transportation infrastructure. I think an an important thing for Lyft and for non-emergency medical transportation in general is Medicaid. And as Nicole well knows from her time at Lyft, Each Medicaid program is administered by each state, and they all had different requirements for non-emergency medical transportation, but by and large, none of them had contemplated when they were written a rideshare model. So a big part of what we needed to go do was to go state by state and work with the policymakers in those states so that Lyft would be eligible to provide access to transportation in each state. And I'm happy to say now that we are eligible to provide rides um, in up to 17 states in the District of Columbia, which is about 44 million eligible Medicaid beneficiaries out of roughly 74 million. So that to me is, you know, a great a great story around Medicaid allowing for innovation uh, within their particular program, which was a, a big milestone. I think an additional thing that um, as we expanded into the healthcare space, you know, I think I talked earlier about the fact that a patient would have to call in to essentially a, a call center. 24 to 48 hours in advance. And certainly as you think about Lyft and you think about our superpower, which is consumer technology and the consumer app, really the vision that we have is the ability on behalf of our partners, those that are uh, administering these transportation benefit programs, is to allow them to set up the program, right? To set how many rides Callie gets, where she gets to go during what hours, put budget controls around it, but then give you the ability to call that ride from your phone. So you would go into the Lyft app and say, oh, United Health Group, you know, has approved 12 rides for me. I need to go to the doctor and, and initiate the ride yourself. Giving riders that kind of agency, that kind of empowerment is very important to us. So we launched that product earlier this year, and that was a big milestone for us. We were very excited about that. And then, you know, I think lastly, you did ask about COVID. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about um, what we did with our vaccination access program. We certainly saw a big need um, in the country for transportation to get to vaccines. So we saw a really clear role for Lyft to play in increasing access to vaccine. And we tapped into the collective strengths and resources of our corporate and philanthropic partners. We've received a lot of positive feedback from that about how we've helped people access the vaccine who would have otherwise been unable to do so. And, um, you know, we obviously see a big role for us to continue to play as the country goes forward and, and needs to get access to boosters. 
That was incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate the comment you had made about empowerment for patients and riders, because that was what I was thinking about as well, is just the dignity that you're giving to people by being able to access rides. So I'm wondering, is Lyft working with other areas of the health system to drive forward the work? Oh, for sure. So thousands of healthcare organizations partner with Lyft Healthcare. That includes nine of the 10 top transportation managers, nine of the top 10 health systems, the top 10 health plans, large uh, retail pharmacy chains, and other key um, digital health and healthcare IT organizations. So those are our customers and we're working on their behalf. And then, as I mentioned, you know, we're eligible to provide access up to 44 million eligible Medicaid beneficiaries. We also, of course, do a lot of work within Medicare Advantage, again, on behalf of our customers. One of the really exciting partnerships that you didn't mention, Megan, but I know it's because you had so many others to talk through, really, um, that have come into play under your leadership of Lyft Healthcare is, is the Lyft for Epic partnerships. Yeah. So um, Epic, obviously, you know, the EMR, we launched Lyft for Epic earlier this year, which would allow a nurse or any kind of knowledge worker working within a health system to call a ride, arrange for a Lyft ride within the patient health record. And now the health system is paying for that ride. They're incented to do that if they have a patient that needs to be discharged, or certainly if they're booking an appointment and they want to arrange a ride, if they know someone has transportation as a barrier to care and they want to get them into a facility or to an outpatient clinic. Wow. It is incredible to hear the origin story, which I think is one of the favorites that I've heard ever, maybe, to where you all are today. It's so impressive. I'd love to hear from both of you what some of the key learnings and takeaways are that you've had from this work. Sure. Happy to jump in and just share and, and reiterate that you you share this, Megan, but it, it's worth saying once more, not only do 6 million Americans each year miss a medical appointment because they lack transportation altogether, but really taking a step back here and thinking about the patients who need healthcare access the most and how lack of transportation is is also a sizable barrier for all other facets of their lives. As you said, Megan, their real lives, um, not just their healthcare lives. So the people who struggle with access to medical transportation are the same people who struggle with getting um, rides and, and um, regular transportation to the sources of their educational attainment, um, their gainful employment, and so much more. And that's in thinking about the stat and what life was like pre-pandemic, pre-2020 um, in the U.S., um, even with a public transportation systems being what they are uh, in local cities and, and counties. But what we've built so far is insufficient, and there are so many gaps. And I just have to continue pointing out the overlap here. So um, my learning is that when Lyft thinks about addressing these, these broader social issues, it comes down to either getting people to the resources or getting the resources to the people. And in the healthcare context, it means overcoming the barriers of ensuring that Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, a large focus for the Lyft Healthcare business at present, is just making sure that those beneficiaries are even aware of their medical transportation benefits and how to use them when they are needed most. I know that this is something that we worked on together when you were at Lyft, but Callie, when we worked to do a survey of Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries um, last year, and we were seeking to understand for the transportation insecure, um, you know, how they viewed their benefit, how they used their benefit. And, you know, we were pretty startled with the results. So 
it was like a third of the survey participants who were transportation insecure had problems getting to healthcare appointments or picking up prescription medications. And we all know how important medication adherence is for, for chronic disease management. And then less than a third of all participants even knew they had an NEMT benefit. That was just really telling to me, I say this all day long, but why wouldn't you pay $20 for a lift ride to get a diabetic to their medical appointment to save you know hundreds of thousands of dollars down the line if they do not go and get their care? It just it seems like a complete no-brainer to me. And so how do we make sure that these people know that this benefit is available to them and get them to use it? I just have to say, again, really that we, we are at a, a point in the U.S. healthcare system where we must assess how best to redefine access to care and not just think about medical outcomes that we uh, have in the past cared about most, but really thinking about how we put more resources behind the social determinants of health and the social determinants of health crisis that we're experiencing right now, and to more openly acknowledge how increasing various social supports like transportation will indeed improve the outcomes that most matter to us in, in healthcare. So again, thinking about how medical transportation is a guaranteed benefit in Medicaid, and yet people don't understand how to use the benefit. And that is Definitely, because there's been a lack of focus placed on the social determinants of health. Absolutely. I am wondering about the opportunity that you all see for businesses and organizations that are traditionally outside of healthcare to get involved in the solutions addressing an individual's or community's health. So I'd say there are tremendous opportunities for various actors in the private sector to jump in and um, see themselves as part of the solution for broader health inequities and lack of access to care. We have to really think much more about deep partnerships across the public and private sector with entities that are in and outside of healthcare that see themselves as healthcare actors and, and even those who don't, given that we know that a significant portion of people who utilize medical transportation benefits and Medicaid actually are seeking behavioral health services. Um, and we certainly, I hope, all know that we have an overrun mental health system in the U.S. Um, that's insufficient and does not have the right workforce when we think about the diverse needs of diverse uh, and racially and ethnically diverse patient populations. So I also want to just add that tackling healthcare access issues and conditions that have inherently sickened Black, Indigenous, and people of color uh, for centuries, that if we really want to tackle these issues, we have to take bold anti-racist action. Uh, we have to collaborate across sectors, again, calling out the non-healthcare entities and actors. And we have to work on issues like poverty, jobs access, fair and affordable housing, quality education, access to affordable food, safe and accessible places for physical activity, clean environments, and more right, as we think about all the things that you need to be healthy and all the things that continue to make certain communities unhealthy in the U.S. So that's the opportunity that I see. More companies stepping up to address these issues, no matter the industry that they actually sit within and seeing them as, as their problem as well. Yeah, that was so well said, Nicole. And obviously, um, you know, your, your passion and your dedication to that throughout your career is palpable. I think with covid over the past 18 months, it just made it painfully aware to the entire entirety of the United States, right? How these structural issues were impacting those that were getting sick and dying of COVID and certainly those that had access to the vaccine and it had it early rather than late, et cetera. So I'm hopeful that it's raised awareness to a lot of the issues 
that you just talked about, and we can work within the healthcare industry and certainly outside of the healthcare industry as people have seen it and have resources that they can put those resources towards this very large problem. Incredible. This was such a wide ranging and informative conversation. Thank you both for joining the podcast. Um, We are going to wrap up with the lightning round, which is something that we do with all of our guests. I'll ask a question and then I'd love to get some quick responses from both of you. So the first question is, what is the passion that you have for what you do? The passion that I have for what I do is bringing much more of a focus on vulnerable, underserved populations across our country, the people who who are sickest, who die earliest, ensuring that their needs are central to how we think about policies that govern how our system works and, and altogether recreating a U.S. healthcare system that just better serves those folks. And it's it's personal to me. It's deeply personal. Um, I you know, grew up in inner city, Washington, D.C. I'm a black woman. I grew up in a low income, nearly all black neighborhood. And I noticed very early on that my community was in crisis and becoming a public health professional and now working at United Health Group and having uh, had the opportunity to work within other areas of healthcare policy uh, delivery. This is a tall task. This is my life's work. And I'm, I'm proud to work alongside many, many other champions in the work. And I'm, I'm happy that we're now having a conversation nationally around some of these issues. And again, I just hope it's not it's not just a moment and that we're using this to really change how healthcare is shaped in the U.S. Well, I don't know that I really want to follow that response, <laughs> um, but similar to Nicole, I mean, my background is in um, is in public health, um, masters in public health and epidemiology, and and really um, am very passionate about all different ways that we can solve a lot of the problems that we've talked about. I think just to take a really finer point on it, you know, um, I've worked in healthcare IT or, or digital health for the majority of my career. And we have tried and failed at a lot of things um, that we thought would make a difference, that we thought would either improve care, reduce the burden of chronic disease, um, you know, certainly take costs out of the system. I'm very passionate and hopeful that the next 10 years are going to be a sea change in healthcare, that things that we had tried and failed before because the technology wasn't there, because the business model wasn't there, because the incentives were not aligned appropriately, because we didn't have the right government support, because we didn't have the right kind of public-private partnerships or the inside-out thinking that, quite frankly, many organizations are now bringing into healthcare, that the next 10 years, I think, are going to make a big, big difference in healthcare. And I'm, I'm passionate about sticking around and, and being a part of that change in whatever form it takes. What is something that you are currently rethinking or reconsidering? I have been thinking about how to bring colleagues and friends along on the journey of framing what is necessary to achieve equity, equity in healthcare and beyond, and thinking about the systems at play, the history that has been taught um, and not taught, quite honestly, and how best to help colleagues and friends on the journey of learning and unlearning what has happened in the U.S. to get us to the point where we are, um, where we where we see different worlds, right? Quite honestly, um, we there's a black world, there's a white world, there's a poor world, there's a wealthy world, and, and COVID has really laid that there for us and thinking about who the pandemic has hit hardest and longest. So thinking about the why, the why of 
what has led us to such a broken healthcare system um, and the many forces at play and how I can help in educating myself and others on those issues. Yeah, that's a, that's a great response, Nicole. Um, I think I've been rethinking, you know, the role that various organizations uh, can have to change healthcare. I think as someone who has been, you know, lifelong working for various healthcare companies, healthcare technology companies, I think that there is a fair amount of hubris around how only only we could fix it, right? Only those of us who knew the industry, who knew the regulations, who knew the limitations could could fix it. And I think one thing that coming to Lyft has really shown me is it is it requires a partnership between uh, subject matter experts in healthcare, but with those that think about problems differently, people that bring expertise from other industries and can look at the problem in a fundamentally different way. And so uh, I think that my attitude has changed very much, and I and I seek out those people over the probably the course of the past, you know, five or six years, but certainly um, even more so now. Incredible. Thank you both again for joining us. It was such an incredible conversation. That was a really incredible conversation. I love that Lyft saw an opportunity to to take action based on the feedback they were receiving from customers, even though they're not traditionally in the healthcare space. I completely agree. I love that origin story. And I think that it just speaks so much to the power of collaboration and bringing in a diversity of people who can think differently about problems to help us address some of the challenges that we have in this space. Yes, indeed. And another point Dr. Cooper talked about is the need to increase the supply of affordable and accessible wellness care prevention options. And while Lyft improves accessibility, bringing people to the healthcare system, there's another option, which is bringing healthcare to people. Yeah, I think that that's a really important tenet of how we can think differently about care, accessibility, and social determinants of health. I actually just read that there are now 2,000 mobile clinics located across the country that provide services including primary care, preventative screening, disease management, behavioral health, dental care, prenatal care, and pediatric care. Yes, as a matter of fact, I recently talked with Shelly Martin. She's the president of OptumCare in Utah and they recently launched their own mobile clinic. So let's take a listen to see what they're doing. So just to start out, could you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your role and why it is that you do what you do? I'm Shelley Martin. I'm the president of OptumCare Utah, and uh, I have been in this role for about seven years. And I really chose this role um, and relocated to Salt Lake City because it was my dream job. It is my dream job. I knew very early on when I was actually young, I was sick uh, and was in the hospital. And as I watched nurses and doctors pretty much save my life, I knew that I wanted to do that someday. I knew that I wanted to help other people and I wanted to help people live healthier lives and help make the healthcare system work better for everyone. And uh, certainly didn't say it that eloquently when I was eight, but knew that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. And so went to uh, college, got my bachelor's of science in nursing, and very quickly found care management. And that kind of brought me to where I am at today. And uh, I get to help alongside my team the incredible community in Utah. 
And we really work hard to raise the bar specifically for our older adults, for our Medicare Advantage patients in this community. So for those who may not be as familiar with an Optum Care Medical Network, can you, um, in Utah, can you explain a little bit about what it is that you do? Yeah, so we work with about 1,000 primary care physicians and about 7,000 specialists to help deliver the care here in the market in the 10 counties that we serve in Northern Utah, literally coordinating the care between the providers. So we have pharmacists on staff who make sure that when patients are discharged, that their medications don't contradict one another. And we have nurses that help patients manage their chronic illness. That's great. And today, what we would like to spend a lot of our time on is access to local care. And so talking a little bit about the barriers that a lot of your patients have in getting care. So if you could just kick us off with kind of the foundation of what you've seen and what some of the solutions are that you are working on, that would be great. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we serve the Medicare Advantage population. And so that older adult population has a lot of obstacles in terms of access to care, right? So some of them may not drive, they may not own a car, they may rely on their uh, loved ones, they may rely on Uber or Lyft or some other kind of cab service. And so they don't always have access to go in to see their doctor. They don't always have access to preventive measures in care. And so you have to meet a patient where they are. And that means that we have to have innovative ways to get those patients in to see a provider. So if a patient is homebound, how do we get a provider into their home to see them? And in this community, right, so over the years, as we looked at the care that we were delivering, I had my team consistently say, you know, we need to create a mobile clinic. We need to do a mobile clinic so that we can meet patients where they're at. And it was truly fulfilling our mission of helping people live healthier lives and making the healthcare system work better for everyone. And so we embarked on that journey. We started building the mobile clinic with a manufacturer. It was slowed through COVID and it was delivered to us, I want to say in February or March. And it has a one of the most cutting edge, innovative uh, mammography suites on the mobile clinic. So we've submitted our accreditation and we have a provisional accreditation, which means that we're approved to do images and to do mammograms. Um, We've been out into the community and it has been incredible, the reception that we've gotten. One of the great things about the mobile clinic is you can't miss it. It's big, it's orange, it's 45 feet, and it's all over this community. When we pull into a parking lot, right, and we've had some really incredible community partners who have allowed us to use their parking lots, our patients, you know, report that they have a really good experience, that it was super easy, right? They got on the bus, 15, 20 minutes later, they were done. And for seven years, we've identified this breast cancer screening issue in this state. And uh, we've had conversations with women who 
we've offered some free mammograms and we've had women say that they wouldn't have had a mammogram otherwise if we had not offered this free mammography. And we're doing really cool things. Um, there's a high school in uh, October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and they do, they call it Pink Night, and they it's a volleyball, and they do their tournament in pink jerseys. And uh, they raise money for cancer, breast cancer, or cancer research, really. And so we'll be parked there offering free mammograms and also helping through a media event, helping those girls raise money for breast cancer awareness or cancer awareness in this community. That's great. So what other services does this mobile clinic have besides mammography? So it has two exam rooms on it. And those exam rooms, when we take it out, are staffed with an advanced practice clinician, so a a PA, a physician's assistant, or an NP, a nurse practitioner. And uh, they will spend an hour doing an annual wellness visit for our Medicare Advantage population. And these days, with healthcare, with a shortage of practitioners, especially, too, with COVID going on, um, people don't necessarily want to go in a physician's office because they don't want to potentially get sick, right? So our mobile clinic will go out, park in a parking lot, and we have appointments scheduled, right? So it's not a walk-on. It's by appointment only. And um, our patients get a full exam. We do a whole bunch of um, preventive care. So we will do a bone density screening. In older adults, that's really important, right? So it identifies if there's osteoporosis or bone loss. They can do point-of-service testing from a blood perspective, so they can check for um, if a patient may be pre-diabetic or diabetic and how well their sugars are are being managed. They can do diabetic retinal eye exams, um, which are really important for diabetic patients because diabetic patients have a higher incidence of blindness. So they're able to do all of those screening exams, and they're free of charge for our Medicare Advantage patients. The key, again, is... There's, again, not enough providers, lots of patients, and a lot of people that are sick. And if we can manage their health before they get sick or identify a disease before it gets too advanced, we can lengthen their life and improve the quality of life. And so our mobile clinic is never intended to um, be an urgent care. It's really only for wellness visits appointment only. But when we do identify something that might need urgent care, we will refer that patient back to their primary care physician. We are never intending to take the place of a primary care physician. We're just trying to help ease the access in primary care offices so that the physicians can really focus on those complex illnesses and manage those complex illnesses while our team is managing the wellness. Right. Because without the mobile unit, many probably would not go to the doctor at all, right? Yes, they wouldn't. Yeah. They would because they may not have they may not be able to get to their primary care physician's office. Right. You know, that just reminds me of a conversation that I had with Christy Henderson, who leads our Center for Digital Health at Optum and just the access is such an issue, even from a telehealth, virtual health in the rural areas. So if we can surround, you know, those people who don't have the access with different options, I mean, I just think that we are going to have a healthier society overall. I agree. And one of the really great things that we're pondering right now is in that rural community where there's a limited number of providers, how do we put a primary care physician on that mobile clinic and take that mobile clinic out to that rural area to address the needs of the community. Um, And granted, right, it's not as good as a physician that's there 
you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But uh, taking a primary care physician out there to help those patients in that rural area get the needed care that they need from a primary care physician is critical. I think the more choices we give patients, the more compliant they are, right? I think as you look at healthcare and how it's evolved over the years, it was, you know, we didn't meet the patient where they were at. We expected the patient to meet us. And the more that we go out there and give the patient the opportunity to choose, um, you know, patients want to be compliant. Patients want to be healthy. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be sick today. And so when we put that option out there for them to help close those preventive gaps and, and the education that we're able to do with them face-to-face in that mobile clinic has really been extraordinary. That's really exciting. Is there anything around access to local care that you would want our listeners to know that we haven't touched on? I, I think sometimes in healthcare, and, and I myself, as I shared, I'm a nurse, um, sometimes I think we look at patients and we make assumptions. And I think sometimes, right, patients don't show up for appointments and we make a judgment. And I think, again, what I've learned so much in the last seven years, and particularly with this mobile clinic, is we got to stop making those judgments and we've got to ask the question, why? Why did the patient not show up? And I think from an access perspective, oftentimes patients just can't get there. So how can we support them to get there so that they can live that life that they so deserve, that healthy life? And how do I meet that patient where they're at so that we can get them to the next step? And and healthcare is not about taking a um, diabetic patient and curing them, right? There is no cure to diabetes, but it's about taking that patient on a journey that if they're better today than they were yesterday, then we're winning. And, and I think sometimes in healthcare, we get lost in wanting to cure or, or wanting to completely solve the problem for the patient. And the reality is, is if I can get my diabetic today to say no to certain foods, I'm better off than I was yesterday. And that patient is better off than yesterday. So I would really say uh, it's about meeting patients where they're at and asking the question and digging deeper as to what we need to do to help that patient even more than they're, uh, than, than where they're at today. I love that. I did not prompt you, Shelly, but in our last episode, we talked a lot about meeting people where they're at, mm-hmm. metaphorically and physically. So yeah. this is another example of that. And I think your point about not judging, you know, I think that if we go into a situation with someone knowing there's probably a lot more that we don't know about them and to give them the benefit of the doubt and to show up with that compassion, I think that that makes all the difference in the world. It really does. It really does. Uh, compassion is is critical. And one of our former CEOs even said once that we need to be able to scale compassion. And, uh, and it is critical for us to be compassionate, to meet patients where they're at, and to be ready to listen, and to be ready to help them along their journey. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you, too, for just taking care of people in the way that you do. And also being a great leader and believing in your team when they pushed and you said, yep, all right, let's go for it. I love that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'd love to see you replicate this in other markets and kind of keep pushing and and being that champion for mobile health to really improve local access to care. So thank you so much, Shelly Barton. Thank you, Stacey. 
You know, Kelly, when we think about all of the different, you know, entrepreneurial type thinking and new ideas and innovative thinking, what's really cool is that it, it comes from often, you know, not just customers, but also employees. And in the case of the Utah Mobile Clinic, it was so great to hear Shelly talk about how her employees, you know, her staff just kept pushing and saying, yes, we think this can work, this mobile clinic. And so Shelly was like, okay, I'm all in if you're all in. And I think it just takes that kind of innovative thinking and energy to make it happen. And they certainly did. I love that as a theme for all of our guests on this episode, Um, listening to the consumer, trusting the people that are closest to the problem, being able to be agile and respond to that in a meaningful way and think about for each of these businesses, how they were uniquely positioned to do that. Because the thing is, you know, people want to be healthy. It's just about finding ways to make that possible. Right. Absolutely. And this, once again, is, you know, kind of keeps coming up in a lot of our episodes, the theme around social determinants and health equity. And we need to make sure that we're serving everyone and access to care is a big part of that. Yeah. Throughout this season, we've seen so many examples of how nuanced and complex a lot of problems within the health system are. The flip side of that, of course, is that there are a lot of ways to start making a difference. And as we've just talked about today, a lot of different players that can come in. As we hear time and again, there's just so much that's interconnected that making a small difference at one point in the process can make a huge difference for a lot of people for the better. Yes, definitely. Well, join us next time as we talk about health literacy, which is another dimension of care accessibility. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next time. I'm Stacey Dove. And I'm Callie Chamberlain. And this is Until It's Fixed, a healthcare innovation podcast from Optum.